The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It is an honor and privilege to share this moment with you. Thank you for being here with us. Our text this morning is Revelation 9. We're continuing our study through the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves considering the sixth angel and his trumpet here in chapter 9. So we'll be looking at Revelation 9, 13 to 21. Again, that's Revelation 9, 13 to 21. This is God's word. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, as always, we need you. We need you desperately. We need fellowship with you, the knowledge of your love. We need courage in your promises, Lord. We need the conviction of your truth. Uh, We need help understanding this passage. So we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would give us clarity as to uh, what you want for us and from us in your word this morning. Lord, also that we can turn to Christ maybe for the first time or maybe again and again and again for the millionth time, running to him as our king, our lord, our savior, our priest. And in doing so, may we be more like him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you want a unique education, maybe sometime read some Frederick Douglass. Douglass was born a slave on a prominent Maryland plantation in 1818. He was incredibly intelligent, basically taught himself to read in his youth in part from a hymnal, and it was reading that especially stirred his commitment to one day be free. During his time as a slave, Douglass witnessed and experienced a great and terrible amount of evils from that horrible institution of slavery. To read his accounts of those things is haunting. Amazingly to me, according to his own words, he was converted from the heart, became a Christian. I actually want to read to you his account of that moment. He remembers the following, and I quote, I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hanson was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. 
He thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. One thing I did know well, I was wretched, had no means of making myself otherwise. I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible? It's always amazing, isn't it, to hear an account of the work of God deep in the heart where one is convicted of sin, turns to Jesus, and sees the world in an entirely new way. I find it especially amazing in Frederick Douglass, and here's why. Those who treated him so poorly were at church every Sunday. For some time, Douglas was under a slave breaker named Mr. Covey. Douglas wrote of him, Mr. Covey's religion hindered him from breaking the Sabbath, but not from breaking my skin. He had more respect for the day than for the man for whom the day was mercifully given. For while he would cut and slash my body during the week, he would not hesitate on Sunday to teach me the value of my soul or the way of life and salvation by Jesus Christ. You see why it's amazing Douglas became a Christian. When those who claimed to be Christians treated him so horribly, you can see why Douglas would later say, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Douglas did escape and become free. He and his wife, Anna, had five children. They read the Bible with them daily, and the main calling of his life was to speak for the abolition of slavery. He was courageous. He was eloquent. He was a licensed preacher, knew the Bible well, valued the principles of the Constitution, and he would argue eloquently that the slaves were human and deserved human rights. They were made in the image of God. They deserve the mercy called for by Jesus Christ, especially from those who claimed to follow him. Douglas once wrote an open letter to his former slave master. I want to read to you from that. Douglas wrote this to his former slave master. He said, you know well that I wear stripes on my back inflicted by your direction, and that you, while we were brothers in the same church, Cause this right hand with which I am now penning this letter to be closely tied to my left and my person dragged at the pistol's mouth 15 miles to be sold like a beast in the market. All this and more you remember and know to be perfectly true, not only of yourself, but of nearly all the slaveholders around you. Your mind must have become darkened, your heart hardened, your conscience seared and petrified, or you would have long since thrown off the accursed load and sought relief at the hands of a sin-forgiving God. 
I shall make use of you as a means of exposing the character of the American church and clergy and as a means of bringing this guilty nation with yourself to repentance. In doing this, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. I am your fellow man, but not your slave. Wow. It is so impressive to note that later, when Douglas's former slave master was near death, Douglas paid him a visit. Reportedly, there was forgiveness, reconciliation, and they parted as friends. Wow. Well, obviously, there are some valuable things to learn from the legacy of this man. One thing especially stands out today. He was not looking for revenge. But he was calling for repentance. Repentance is what our passage is about today. We're continuing our study through Revelation. We've hit this sixth trumpet. And we see, obviously, the sixth trumpet is notoriously hard to understand. But the point of the sixth trumpet is not hard to understand at all, though it may be hard to receive. The point of all these trumpets is the need for repentance. Repentance is a massive, glorious theme throughout the Bible. It is a primary way we are to respond to the living God, who he is, and what he's done. We're told in the scriptures it's the kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. We're told that the way to prepare for the coming of the Lord is to repent. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Meta means change. Noia is mind. And so we get this core idea. Repentance is two things. Number one, it's a change of mind in that you see things in a new way. Number two, that new way of seeing brings a new way of living. So we become, in, in repentance, we become convinced that in some way we have been thinking, loving, doing the wrong things, and we have this change of mind, so we turn, and we want now to start thinking, loving, doing the right things instead. So we want to work to understand this passage. We want to hear its call to repentance, and we want to ponder one important way we live out that we are to live out that repentance together. That's the three things I want to do with you this morning. Understand the passage. Here it's called to repentance. Ponder one important way we are to live out that repentance together. So to understand this passage, a little background. We remember that these trumpets signify the wrath of God in some way on those who refuse to repent. And we can feel a little timid sometimes talking about the wrath of God but doesn't even just remembering the details of slavery, for instance, make you value the wrath of God a little more? Doesn't looking out at the evil of this world remind us that in many ways justice never seems to quite come in this life? And so it is good to remember that there is a holy God, a just God, who will avenge all sin with perfect justice. And his people, in many ways, can rest in that. In fact, it's his justice and his vengeance that enables us not to need to seek our own revenge. 
Vengeance is his. He will repay. But he is a God of righteousness, and that means when he sees and encounters evil, it brings his wrath. We've also seen through our study that God's wrath comes in a variety of surprising ways. We looked at this last week. Romans 1 showed us that sometimes God's wrath is shown in giving people over to further love their sin. It's as if God says to the sinful heart that won't repent, you don't want me? Fine. Have what you want. Sometimes the scariest thing God can do for us is give us more of what we want. And that helped us understand the fifth trumpet from last week. We remembered the reality of the demonic. Demons are personal spiritual beings who hate God and want to destroy. The main way they destroy is through deception. From the very beginning, they have told a core threefold lie. Number one, God's not good. Number two, his word is not true. If you buy those two things, you'll buy the third lie. You'll be happier if you replace him. That's why sin so often is called idolatry. And so we saw last week that as the human heart believes the lie and continues in it and refuses to repent, another aspect of God's wrath is that he gives over those who won't repent to the spiritual authority they have, re- they have preferred. And this is a scary thing. We realize there's really only two options spiritually. There's the true authority of the living God seen in Jesus Christ, and there's the deception of Satan. And if we don't want God's authority, the only other option is not a good one. It's not kind, and its aim is to destroy Well, as we reach the sixth trumpet, we realize it's an intensification of the fifth one, and we want to try to unpack it some now. Let's remember, so important for reading Revelation, we want to read Revelation biblically and symbolically. Revelation is obviously packed with symbols, and we we know that they are taken from the Old Testament. So the more we understand what the Old Testament is saying, the better we can understand what John is saying And that's especially important in this passage, isn't it? Many commentators, pastors have wanted to somehow apply this sixth trumpet, in my view, maybe too literally. And of course, if we were to take it uh, in a literalistic sense, you know, it gets ridiculous. What are we to do? Station webcams along the Euphrates River and wait for an army of 200 million lion-headed, fire-breathing, snake-tailed horses. Well, obviously, that forces us to read this symbolically. So what do these symbols mean? Let's just walk through the text, can't every detail, but observe three main ideas. Number one, the thing to see in verses 13 to 15, at least a main thing, is to remember Jesus is in control even of this. That's what Revelation is mainly about, isn't it? It's about how Jesus is king, and he wins, and so will his people. That enables us to be faithful in times of tribulation, and we know we see that Jesus is king over the events of this trumpet. He opened the seal that began these trumpets. He gave the trumpets out. He tells the sixth angel what to do. Uh, These angels, these four angels are bound until Jesus decides They are prepared and get released as he determines, and their work is limited by his control. So know this yet again. Jesus is king. He's in control. He wins, and so will his people. We rest in that. But we also see that this is another example of 
another expression of God's wrath in some way. Uh, we observe, obviously, this is a massive army. We see that in verse 16. You know, if you take it literally, it probably gets you to 200 million, I guess, but um, in, the, in the original language, it basically says a double myriad of myriad. And the point here is it's uncountable. It's just uncountable. It's a massive, massive army. Why the Euphrates? Why the Euphrates? And that's, that's led to a lot of different theories about which nation and this nation and that nation. Um, but again, maybe that's taking it too literally. You know, for the, for the Roman world, across the Euphrates is where big military trouble came from. Uh, there, for John's original audience, that's where the Parthian Empire lurks. Um, those are our, that's our fear, that, that other nation, that dangerous nation. We can understand that sense. But the Euphrates represented this for Old Testament thought as well. If you remember, mid-700s B.C., it was Assyria that came from the northeast to cross the Euphrates and destroy Israel. In the 500s, it was Babylon that came from the northeast to cross the Euphrates and destroy Judah. So in this Old Testament thinking and Greco-Roman thinking across the Euphrates, that's where that scary judgment comes from. Read Jeremiah 46, perhaps later, and it sounds just like this trumpet. God's judgment comes in these armies crossing the Euphrates. So I think what this is supposed to do is just give us this idea of this massive, fearful army bringing the judgment of God. However, we see these are not your normal armies, at least not in this view of them. Uh, it's very strange, this passage, because you hear almost nothing about the soldiers except the color of their armor. All the attention is on what brings these armies. It's on their horses. So what are these colors about? In some translations you'll read it was red, blue, yellow. Um, and really what's happening here is that the colors of this armor represent the three plagues of warning and judgment that they bring. So in verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur. That's what the colors of the armor represent, the fire, the smoke, the sulfur, so now we have a question. Well, what's the significance of fire, smoke, and sulfur? Well, again, where do we look for answers to these questions? We look to the Old Testament for the key. And there is one major place where fire, smoke, and sulfur all come together at once, and that's in Genesis 19. There you find that infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God overwhelmingly judges an evil unrepentant people. So here's what the colors of these breastplates mean. The colors are shouting at us. These armies are part of God's judgment on those who won't repent. That's what it means. So what about these horses? Uh, did you notice they're very mouthy creatures? Verse 17, fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Their mouths somehow inspire the death in verse 18. It's repeated again in verse 19, for the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So the, so the power's in their mouths and in their tails, but even their tails have mouths. What are we supposed to do with that? Again, the Old Testament is the key. Look at a text like Psalm 58. 
Psalm 58, the psalmist writes, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. So many of the same themes. Destruction, deception, and we see the idea of a snake-like mouth, of a fire-breathing mouth. The issue is in what is taught. The issue is deception. This, this is communicating to us deception with the purpose of destruction. Now listen to what Jesus even said to the Pharisees. You know, his major issue with them was what they taught. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How does somebody get the name serpent or viper? It's when they teach what is false. They deny the truth about God in his word. So putting all this together, what is the influence bringing these armies of judgment? I think the right interpretation is it's demonic deception. And it builds on what we saw last week. It seems that John is saying, as humanity refuses to repent, continues to believe the lie, God's not good, his word's not true, replace him, as humanity continues to love sin, as humanity is given over to the spiritual authority they have preferred, it all adds up to cause events of mass destruction and death. And those events shout to all the world, they shout to us, we need to repent what might this look like in our world? It's, it's not hard for me to imagine. I think we can envision the great wars, the pillaging, the horrid destructions human have brought on the world. I think this has occurred since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. I think it will occur until he comes back and probably increase as we approach the moment of his return. But what's the point? I mean, there's more we could say, but let's let it take us to the point. What's the point? The point is that all these varieties of God's wrath as seen in this age of tribulation, they trumpet to us, they trumpet to the whole world the message that we need to repent. It's a wake-up call. And amazingly, many will not answer it. We see the point of these texts in verses 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The three things I think we need to see as we come to this idea of repentance. Number one, our sin is described, isn't it, as idolatry. Our sin is described as idolatry. There's that core lie again. If God's not good and his word's not true, let's replace him. Let's find a new authority, a new meaning, a new satisfaction, a new hope. And I would submit to you that's why we sin every time. 
And so we find that we all serve something. We all live for something. We are all worshipers. And the great question is, who is it for you? What has your heart? What has your mind? If it's not the triune God of the Bible through Jesus Christ and what he's done, it's an idol. And it's demonically inspired, this text says. Because again, it's not like it's Jesus or being a Satanist. The core lie is to, not, to deny that God is good, his word is true, and then replace him. So if Jesus is the only way, it makes sense that Satan would be happy with any other way. So sin is described as idolatry. Also, our idolatry is shown here to be hopeless. Don't the trumpets just show us as the things of this world fall apart, are devastated, as the world groans under all this suffering, we are to realize that our idolatry is a failed project. These things we trust in won't hold. They won't satisfy. Our idolatry is also shown to be hopeless in that it corrupts us. There's a principle here that's seen all through the Bible. It's this principle that we become what we behold. See, our idols aren't real gods. They can't see or hear or walk. We actually kind of invent these idols, these images, and bow before them. And as we follow these things that aren't God, in a way the image of God in us is tainted. Psalm 115, verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Verse 5, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Just as these idols can't see or hear or walk, as we follow them, we become blind. Uh, we can't hear truth like we should. We can't walk like we ought to. It corrupts us, this sin, this idolatry. And I think it's so important to notice this third thing about our sin and idolatry is how our lack of love for God our idolatry is primarily expressed in the mistreatment of others. Look at these examples of behavior in verse 21. Murder. We hate others, demean others, injure others, even kill others. Sorceries. We control things and others in the service to the idol. Sexual immorality. We remember... Sex is designed for marriage. It's God designed it beautiful and good. It's the body of a husband and wife expressing the unity of permanence of that covenant. But in idolatry, we twist God's design for sexuality, and that injures ourselves and others. I think if you ponder that for very long, you'll see ways that is true. Then there's thefts. We take what belongs to others. We withhold from them the love they deserve. So do you see this? So, so much of a, the way we live out idolatry is in the mistreatment of others. So what are we to do in this face then of idolatry, this face of sin? Well, repent. Turn. And we ask, well, how? I mean, is this text saying, hey, fix yourself, change yourself? And it's pretty clear that you can't. I mean, part of the problem is our hearts are so tainted. 
And so we remember the bigger picture of this book, of the whole Bible. We remember the gospel. In Revelation 8, chapter 1, the one who is in control is called the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God. Why is Jesus called the Lamb? It's because he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who gave himself up for us to save us from our sins. And here's the heart of repentance. The only hope for repentance, the only real and true repentance happens through the compassion of Jesus Christ. The compassion of Jesus Christ. And we've all been idolaters, and there's no one listening right now who is right with God on their own, based on their own goodness. I certainly am not. We've all loved and served things that God has made more than him. None of us have loved God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, or loved our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, Jesus came to save sinful idolaters like me. Revelation 1.5 is so beautiful. John just praises Jesus, saying, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So there's no benefit in minimizing the reality of our sin, but there is also no sin Jesus will not forgive or cleanse for those who turn and trust in him. And consider his compassion. He came, the eternal son of God came and took on human flesh for us. He went to the cross and suffered there in our place, taking on himself the wrath of God we deserve for our sin. He rose from the dead. He reigns for us. He intercedes for us. He will one day return for us. This is the gospel truth. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our hope. Repent through the compassion of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, turn to him. Turn to him. Know his forgiveness, his salvation. If you are, let's keep turning. Keep turning, knowing him, our Savior, our Lord, our priest, our King. This is most important. We repent through the compassion of Christ. But that leads to this next question. How are we to show the reality of our repentance? How are we to live it out? Remember, if it's a lack of repentance that shows itself in demeaning others, the reality of repentance will be seen, won't it? In compassion for others? Won't those who repent to Jesus through his great compassion then want to show that compassion? Instead of murders, there would be giving our lives for others. Instead of sorceries, there would be submission to the real God according to his word and letting that define our relationships. Instead of sexual immorality, there would be sexual integrity. Instead of thefts, there would be generosity. There would be compassion. You, know, you might wonder why I started with Frederick Douglass this morning. Well, this, this morning as a church, we were remembering Sanctity of Life Sunday, we've done this every January for years. It's time when we remember that every single human being is made in the image of God and therefore deserving of dignity and compassion. And while we can thank God that the kind of slavery Douglas knew is now unthinkable in our country, 
We must remember that there are right now 40 million slaves in the world. And one-fourth of them are children. We remember that human trafficking generates perhaps $150 billion annually. Talk about idolatry. How can we show compassion? It's hard to know so many times, isn't it? Here's one way. This is a big part of our budget here at Fountain of Life. We support international justice mission. This group intelligently, fruitfully counters versions of slavery all across the world. IJM helps to rescue, rehabilitate the victims, prosecute the criminals, and helps foster healthy justice systems in many places around our world. And there's been good reports from IGM recently. There's an office in Bangalore, India, reporting that in recent months, 40 people have been rescued from forced labor. Uh, We especially partner with an IJM office in the Dominican Republic. And uh, been told this month, after much advocacy, the president there signed a ban on child marriage, which for so long has been a source of abuse for young girls in that country. Thank God. Praise God. But that's one way, isn't it, to remember the dignity and value of every human life and want to live out our repentance in compassion. There's another reason Douglas speaks to me. As I read Frederick Douglas, he gives me courage in that he spoke so boldly to an issue that wasn't popular. And as I hear his arguments advocating for the dignity and humanity of the slave, I hear the echo of his arguments advocating for the dignity and humanity of those who are yet to be born. I hear his arguments against slavery speaking against abortion. I've long believed there are horrible parallels between slavery and abortion. I wonder if you see them as well. First, each depends on a certain kind of narrative, doesn't it? It tells a story where there's a certain kind of people who aren't human in the same way. It gives this language that demeans the humanity of a certain group of people. Second, that language is used to justify the mistreatment of that people. It's that that narrative to say they're less than human is used to justify treating them in ways we would never want to be treated ourselves. And third, it becomes a huge business that's culturally accepted. So when Douglas argues, am I not a man like you? I hear his arguments asking our day, are those yet to be born not human beings like the rest of us, worthy of compassion and human rights? There's something like 3,000 abortions a day in our nation, 60 million since Roe v. Wade. And what, what is it called? It's called reproductive freedom. It's called a right Yet it so obviously destroys the life of an innocent human being. It takes rights. It denies freedom. And speaking of sorcery, what is the strange magic that changes a little infant girl from legally disposable to a valued human simply because she passes through a birth canal? Is it wantedness that defines the reality of what she is. Of course not. From her first moment of existence, she was made in the image of God. 
worthy of compassion, worthy of protection, worthy of human rights and dignity. I mean, we were each all fetuses. The only difference between me and someone yet to be born is age. We could go on and on, but we don't need to. If this is true, then like slavery, abortion is a great evil. This text says we need to repent. It says that any leader or administration or nation that establishes abortion, they desperately need to repent. I'd like to borrow these words from Frederick Douglass for today. Douglass said, I would invoke the spirit of patriotism in the name of the law of the living God, natural and revealed, and in the full belief that righteousness exalteth a nation while sin is a reproach to any people, in the spirit of genuine patriotism, I warn the American people by all that is just and honorable to beware. I warn them that strong, proud, and prosperous though we be, there is a power above us that can bring down high looks, at the breath of whose mouth our wealth may take wings, and before whom every knee shall bow. So we need to repent, and we can through the compassion of Christ. And we can show our repentance by living in the compassion of Christ. Mothers experiencing crisis pregnancies are in need of compassion. Difficult family situations are in need of compassion. Those who have experienced or participated in abortion need compassion. They need to know that in Jesus Christ there's complete forgiveness and healing. Of course, children yet to be born need compassion. So one way, just one way we can show the compassion of Christ, it's another thing that's important to us here at Fountain of Life, is to support groups like Horizon Pregnancy Clinic. There, vulnerable families get compassion, free ultrasounds, counseling, post-abortion recovery, resources for families in need. Just this year, Horizon has given 631 ultrasounds, 22 abortion pill reversals, 3,000 client appointments, 291 moms choosing life, all in a setting of compassion. There was something else I read this week. It was Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. It was written by a man who had been a slave trader. Like Douglas, he saw the gruesome reality of that system. Like Douglas, that slave trader repented. He also also wrote something else that may be more familiar to you. John Newton wrote this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It stupefies me to think that our Jesus has in his heaven as recipients of his grace people like both Frederick Douglass and John Newton together as brothers in Christ in the family of God. Oh, the compassion of Jesus Christ. Let's repent to him in light of his great compassion and let's show our repentance 
in compassion towards all he has made, those in his image. Let's pray. Our Father, these are heavy concepts, heavy ideas, and yet the world, when seen honestly, can be such a dark place, and part of the darkness is in us, in our hearts. And so we come humbly to Jesus Christ. We remember you, Lord Jesus, in your holy perfection, full of compassion, coming to take on human flesh for us, and you suffered. You were tempted in every way as we and yet without sin. And you died on the cross as a substitution in our place. What love that you would take upon yourself the just wrath we deserve. And now you promise that all who turn to you in faith uh, have what you've done. We're forgiven. We're righteous. You're praying for us even now. You reign for our good. You'll return for us when the time is right. I pray, Lord, that those feeling the pain of sin done to them, sin they have done, would be washed in a special way by your love, your grace, your compassion, your forgiveness, your promises. And I pray, Lord, that as we look to you, we'd want to find ways our repentance can show itself in living out compassion for others, living in the truth that every human being is made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and love. Even our enemies. We thank you, God, for who you are. We want to be like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.